Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And Mary Alice, the uh, first trial of the Robert Mueller investigation is upon us. Paul Manafort's trial well underway uh, just across the river here in Virginia. Uh, And a lot emanating from that out of the headlines. Meanwhile, a lot on the president's mind. Some fresh tweets uh, raging against the Mueller investigation and now appearing to cross a line he hasn't been over before. Now saying that Jeff Sessions should shut this down. The White House saying this is just an opinion. Uh, It is not a directive, but it sounds pretty clear what the president's wishes are. And uh, this is another moment in in a long slide in this direction for President Trump. It's a similar conversation this White House has grappled with in the past. What is a presidential tweet? Is it a directive? Is it truth? Is it uh, the word of this White House or not? Uh, Sarah Sanders today trying to say that it was just an opinion, but the opinion of the president of the United States has weight, carries weight, can move markets and move administrations. And there's going to be serious questions as to whether or not the president was working or actively obstructing justice with these opinions that he's expressing. And we're going to check in uh, in today's program with a uh, close confidant of President Trump, Matt Schlapp of the American Conservative Union. We're also going to talk to the number two Democrat in the Senate, Dick Durbin, who I think will have some interesting things to say on this, as well as the issue of child separation at the border, which has got some fresh headlines around it as well. Uh, But it is an interesting moment, Mary Alice, because here we are. um, It is now August. The president is in full-on campaign mode. He's got three rallies this week alone, including one just last night, a a typically wild one uh, in Florida, coming up next, Pennsylvania and Ohio. He is in midterm mode. Uh, Meanwhile, you have this playing, uh, this trial playing out uh, of his former campaign manager, uh, an outgrowth of the Mueller investigation, and the president's uh, very public views that the entire Mueller probe itself is illegitimate and should should be shut down. Uh, They've escalated these attacks. To my mind, there's a line somewhere between just PR and framing and and trying to discredit Mueller and active interference with the Mueller investigation. And he has so far, despite all that he said, not done anything that we're aware of to actually impede the workings of it. Uh, Rod Rosenstein, who's the deputy attorney general who's in charge of the investigation, has expressed his faith in Mueller. Faith in Mueller. We haven't heard anything about resources being starved. We haven't heard anything about uh, limitations put on what Robert Mueller can do. It's only only been words. There, There may be a sense of that shifting, though, as Mueller own actions become more than words and become a potential conviction in a court of law. And Republicans on Capitol Hill have said repeatedly they think that the investigation should play out, that investigations that don't come up with anything uh, serve their own purpose because they prove innocence. Um, they they get to the bottom of something. And if you're worried about Russian meddling, if you're worried about what could have happened in 2016 and worried about what could still be happening for this election, why wouldn't you want to have the, the special counsel do its job? You know, I think that it's interesting that all this is coming to a head right now when, like you said, we are so close to these midterm elections and we have such big conversation right now in the tech community about whether there is meddling going on ahead of this midterms. Facebook shutting down pages, Microsoft saying that it caught things. We are seeing potentially a real threat uh, just 100 days out as voters will go back to the polls. And the idea that foreign governments would be trying to sway public opinion here, would be trying to create a division in the country, so division in the country is scary. Uh, that's a, That feels like a real threat, a real vulnerability. You're right. 
and it begins to come out of the realm of uh, of what could be happening uh, into what actually is happening. And that's, I think, a key point in all of this, that we know they're trying to do this again. In fact, the, even the White House is, is acknowledging as much. They're, they're now very clearly beginning to say, whether it's the Homeland Security Secretary or the Vice President just yesterday, yes, Ru- the Russians meddled in the election. We've heard it from a range of intelligence officials, uh, including the Republican chairman of the Intelligence Committee, all, all over again saying this is happening. It is an active threat. It is going on right now. That makes for an interesting disconnect to say that the one special probe that's out there that's supposed to look at all of what happened in 2016 around uh, interference by the Russians should go away, should be shut down, should be ended prematurely, should be uh, some in some way impeded from reaching its, its final goals. It does not appear that that raging against the Mueller probe has had any kind of political, any kind of electoral impact. Uh, it doesn't appear that any, there's any candidates out there who needs to put significant distance between themselves and Donald Trump because of it. But you're, you're exactly right in making the point. This is the president. This is the White House. They have the tools. They have the capacity. Uh, and if you believe what the evidence shows, then the United States is under attack. American democracy itself is being attacked. The question is, what our defenses look like? What kind of pushback there is? And so far, other than uh, some scattered things that are happening along along the edges, you're not seeing the funding, you're not seeing the task forces, you're seeing a few private industries stand up, but you're not seeing a full-on, full-throated government response. And it's a lot. And, and that feels like we're just scratching the surface of the news this week. I mean, I have on my list, I walked in today, there was health care news, the White, the White House rolling out new short-term health care plans that could dramatically impact the cost of health insurance for, for the elderly and for people with pre-existing conditions. There were new accusations today about mistreatment against minors in some of those detention facilities where uh, young, young minors were separated from their families and are being held separately. There was a judge this week that ordered a one- a detention facility to stop giving drugs to some of those children without consent of their parents because they were giving drugs to children without consent of their parents. It feels like a barrage of headlines to weed through a number of things that are impacting the daily lives of Americans and the people in this country. And with that, we will turn right to our guest. We're pleased to be joined here on Powerhouse Politics by Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois and the number two Democrat in the United States Senate. Uh, Senator, thanks for being here. Good to be with you. And uh, a lot going on in the news, but we want to start with the latest from the president. And and I, I wonder about this from your perspective as someone who's uh, you know, on the Senate Judiciary Committee and, and watched all of this unfold for, for quite some time now. Uh, the president now uh, saying that Jeff Sessions needs to end the Mueller probe. Is this a line that, to your mind, hasn't been crossed before? Does that change substantively what the president has said? Does it point in the direction of obstruction of justice, to your mind, seeing what the president is now saying about the Mueller probe? Well, let's say this for the record. Uh, president Donald Trump's tweets are difficult to follow, uh, inconsistent, uh, many times contradictory, uh, and they just flow like water over a hill. Uh, it's really hard to keep up with his, this man's thinking and whether his tweets really reflect any uh, thoughtful uh, consideration of the issues before us. Start with the obvious. Jeff Sessions is recused from this whole matter because he did it himself. He's removed himself. The power uh, over the special counsel is with Rod Robenstein, uh, Rob Robenstein, who is in the position where he appointed Mueller and is now direct supervision over his uh, his consideration of this case. So this notion that that somehow Sessions has the power to do this is hard to understand. But does it does it matter that he is saying this 
in a public forum or even a private forum, any way to the, the attorney general. The attorney general could replace Rod Rosenstein. He could he could turn down funding requests. He could order Rod Rosenstein to move in a certain direction. He could unrecuse himself, as so far as we know how it would work. Does it does it matter, or is it just do you, do you, can you believe the White House line that it's just the president stating an opinion? Well, I I, I take what. Attorney General Sessions has said uh, very recently that he has great faith in Rosenstein and what he's doing and uh, stands behind this decision to move forward with this. Uh, now, that comes from Sessions himself, and I'm going to hold him to that, and, and I'm going to say at this moment I believe that accurately reflects the way he feels, so he's not likely to follow the president's advice. So why would the president do this? Well, he's doing this to feed his base, to create some uncertainty in the American public opinion when it comes to this investigation and where it's headed. Uh, and it's worked. He's at a decided advantage. He can issue a tweet every five minutes, and sometimes he does, uh, while Mueller is following the basic ethical canons of a prosecutor and not trying a case in the press and not fighting this president tweet for tweet. So the president has advantage at this point. He's discrediting Mueller every day that he can in the hopes that the American people wouldn't believe him if he came out and said anything. I want to switch gears uh, to the topic of family separations. You've been uh, talking out about this and writing extensively on the issue. And just this week, asked one of the organizations that runs some of the detention centers to investigate allegations that were reported from children, uh, basically allegations of mistreatment in some of the invest in some of the centers. I'm I'm wondering. I was sort of struck by this letter because I thought that the federal government or Congress would maybe do that sort of oversight. Does it make sense to ask the organization to do an investigation of allegations of mistreatment within their own organization? We finally, after months of this zero-tolerance policy, we finally had a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, long overdue. Uh, the Immigration Subcommittee, which I rank, I'm the ranking member of, uh, should have had this hearing long ago, the full committee as well. we finally done it. In the meantime, though, you, you just reach out and try to find someone, uh, some credible agent or person who will take a look at the treatment of these children who have been forcibly removed by their parents because of the zero-tolerance policy of the Trump administration. The hearing this week really opened the eyes of many people. You know, here we had six witnesses representing this administration. And when asked, not a single one would put up their hands and say this was a good policy. Not a single one of them. And they all basically said, well, this really wasn't my decision. Somebody else made the decision. They pointed a finger of blame in every direction. This comes down to the White House, to the president, and to his advisors, and perhaps the attorney general. They dreamed this disastrous uh, policy up, and hundreds of thousands of people have suffered. During that hearing, you called for Secretary Nielsen to resign, um, assuming that she doesn't. What are your next steps here? Do you urge your colleagues to hold more hearings? I, of course, I think we should consider uh, more hearings uh, as soon as we return from the 10 or 12 days, which will be gone. Why? Because we have 711 children in custody of the United States government and have not reunited them with their parents. Uh, That has to come to an end. These kids have to go back to a safe parenting family situation. And we have 94, I believe the last number was, it changes by the day, that they can't even identify. They can't figure out who the parents are. This was the worst case of bungling and gross uh, miscarriage of justice that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them. To think that we would forcibly remove 2,700 or more children and not keep track of where their parents are, where they're going. Uh, As one of my colleagues said at the hearing, kids who walk into Chuck E. Cheese's 
have a better reference system, a locator system, than what we had at the federal government level. Senator, there's been some headlines in the last couple of days um, that don't just hint at the idea of Russian meddling in, in the midterms, but get directly to it. Um, actual uh, evidence that points in very much in that direction. Your colleague, Senator McCaskill, uh, was the target of a phishing attack uh, within the last week or so. There was a bizarre attempt to try to get information from Senator Shaheen uh, and her office. And, of course, the news that Facebook has shut down 32 accounts and or pages that appear to have had uh, malicious intent, um, so-called uh, uh, influence campaigns that appear to have Russian connections. First question is, uh, what do you, is your understanding of the scope of what the Russians are trying to do right now I- for the 2018 elections? Let me preface what I'm about to say by suggesting that we all should drop the word meddling from our conversation when it comes to the Russians. Meddling sounds like some tomfoolery by a teenager. What we're talking about here is the decision of a nuclear-powered nation, enemy of the United States, to undermine the electoral process of the United States of America. They tried in the last election. They are determined to do it again. As the Director of National Intelligence tells us, the red lights are blinking, and we know they're after us. They're looking for every wormhole they can find to get into voter files and to upset the results of the next election and many beyond. We had a hearing, not a hearing, but a gathering this morning of ambassadors from the Baltic nations, Poland, Montenegro, Ukraine. Each one of them had a story to tell about what the Russians had done in their countries to undermine their elections. This is uh, as overt and direct a national strategy by Russia as any nuclear policy that they have accepted or undertaken. And we don't take it seriously. Now we have a warning that even worse than than this involvement in our election campaign is the possibility that they have some access into our electric grid. If the Russians can turn out the lights in cities across America, shame on us. You know, the president can hold hands with Vladimir Putin all he wishes, but leaders of our government and leaders around the world know better. This man is up to no good, and he needs to be stopped. What is your sense of the response so far? I don't think it's lost on many people that the McCaskill phishing attempt came to light because Microsoft caught it and that Facebook shut down these accounts on its own. Does the federal government have a response, a sufficient response? Does the White House, is there, is there a point person over there? Is, there? is there some sense of urgency that you're detecting that's beginning to change in, in what's actually actively going on? The fact that I cannot identify the one person in this administration that is working night and day to make sure that our elections uh, and communications in this country are protected from Russian intrusion speaks volumes. Uh, The president has never taken it seriously. He was in complete denial for months, if not longer, as to whether it ever occurred and thought that any suggestion that there was a Russian involvement somehow reflected on his grand victory in the last election. It doesn't. It reflects on the reality that the Russians were poised Uh, to engage in mischief, if not worse, and we're doing nothing to stop them in the next election. What happened to my colleagues, uh, it it could happen to any member of Congress and is likely to before the November election. You mentioned meeting with some Baltic state leaders uh, today, and, and in your statement about that meeting, you said that it was specifically urgent after the press conference that the president held in Helsinki. But I don't 
theoretical level, is it appropriate for members of the Senate to conduct foreign policy like that? Well, we do it all the time. Uh, we meet with ambassadors. They come to our offices for meetings. They come to committees for hearings. Uh, we express our own personal views. Uh, sometimes committees will pass resolutions, uh, and, and even the Senate. In the last few weeks, we've done two significant historic resolutions, one uh, reaffirming our commitment to the NATO alliance after the president raised serious questions in his trip to Brussels, and secondly, uh, making it clear that the United States government uh, will not allow Vladimir Putin uh, to in any way take uh, physical possession of our uh, diplomats or soldiers, uh, as he suggested he might. And with the president, the thought was a pretty good idea, he said at Helsinki. Uh, we passed both of those resolutions by overwhelming bipartisan measures. Congress speaks to foreign policy issues on a regular basis. The meeting we had this morning was informal, but we had a strong turnout of Democrats and even more Republicans telling these folks who are allies and friends that we're still standing by them. Senator, let's get a quick update on, on the Kavanaugh nomination. Uh, Senator Rand Paul this week came out in support. Uh, we know that Senator Joe Manchin had a long, uh, extensive meeting. He hasn't come out one way or the other. You, of course, are leading the charge against Kavanaugh. But based on what you're seeing with your colleagues, based on how you're seeing this play out, are you concerned that you're, you're losing the fight to define him in a way that could actually result in his defeat? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, the fact of the matter is, when you look at public opinion polls, the American people know very little about Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, he was announced several weeks ago, but there have been many uh, historic intervening events that have occurred since then, which have taken the public attention away from his Supreme Court nomination. The most significant thing internally that's occurred was a decision by Chairman Grassley of the Senate Judiciary Committee not to follow the standards of disclosure that have been required of Democratic nominees for the Supreme Court. Both Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, when they were up uh, to be nominated to fill vacancies on the Supreme Court, were required to produce volumes of documents and information about their previous activity so that members of the committee and the public could take a close look at who they are, what they believe, what they've done in the past before giving them a lifetime appointment to the highest court of the land. In this case, the Republicans, both the White House and the Republicans in the Senate, have decided to close the door to a three-year period in Brett Kavanaugh's life when he played a central role in the administration of our government, serving as secretary to the president. It sounds like it's a paper-shuffling job. It's dramatically more than that. It's a policy job most days to determine what policy papers come before the president and to make sure that they've been reviewed by the proper sources. It really gets to the heart of policy-making decisions. The Republicans in the Senate have refused to make those documents available, even though they've required them of previous Democratic nominees. You suggested this last weekend that it might be worth putting some red state Democrats in tough positions in their campaigns, maybe even worth them losing their campaigns if it was possible to stop this nomination. Am I interpreting that right? Do you think that it is is it is worth it? And what's, well, what's your pitch I, I, to those guys? Well, my pitch to them is um, friend to friend. Uh, those who believe that we have some, since I'm the nominal whip of the Senate, that we have some disciplinary control over United States senators in our caucus don't understand my colleagues. My colleagues are independent. Uh, they make up their own minds. They don't bow to pressure at all. And when it comes to an historic decision, 
uh, one such as filling this vacancy on the Supreme Court and deciding the, the course of that uh, institution for the next generation or beyond, they're going to make their own personal decisions. We talk it over, we discuss it, we bring out uh, witnesses, evidence, information for each member to consider. What I said, and I'll return to, I think my colleagues on an historic decision like this, a critically important decision like this, are going to make the decision they think is right for America. It may not play well back home. It may play very well at home. But I don't think that's the first consideration they have. Senator, before we let you go, one of our colleagues, Chris Donovan, something of a human encyclopedia on such things, reminds us that uh, back in the, in the summer and fall of 2006, before the midterms, before the Democrats took back control of the House, there was a Senator, Dick Durbin of Illinois, who was pointing at a particular 2008 candidate and publicly urging Senator Barack Obama to reconsider his vow to serve a full term uh, in, in the Senate, representing your home state of Illinois as your junior senator, and to get into the race. And so you had the magic touch last time. So the question is, here, sitting here in uh, in the summer of 2018, a dozen years later, who is uh, who, who is your pick? Who, who's going to be the Democratic nominee? Who should should be the Democratic nominee? I was thinking about that the other day because my conversation with Barack Obama was not the first one to suggest he should run for president, but it occurred in December of 2006. Well, if you project that forward, it would be a December conversation this year leading to someone headed to the Democratic nomination. I just thought he really stood out from the pack, and I've seen a lot of politicians and political leaders and good ones. He was extraordinary, and I encouraged him. I was the first U.S. senator to endorse him for 14 months. I was the only U.S. senator who endorsed him, but eventually he caught on and was very successful. I look at the potential candidates now, and there are many, and they're extraordinarily talented. It is early, and I'm sure many of them are uh, considering the possibilities here. Uh, I'm not going to put my blessing or put my finger on any single one of them at this point. I will tell you, and it, it bears repeating, this, this election is critically important 2018, but 2020 is going to be a game changer for America. Uh, we have to think about that process very carefully and make sure the standard bearers uh, for the Democratic Party is one who has a good chance of winning. All right. Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, the, the nominal whip. I like that new term, the nominal whip in the Democratic <laughs> Party. A little self-deprecating there. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Senator. Thanks for joining. Appreciate it. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. When we come back, Mary Alice and I will check in with Matt Schlapp, the president of the American Conservative Union and a key Trump advisor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. We're pleased to be joined on Powerhouse Politics by Matt Schlapp, the chairman of the American Conservative Union and a a confidant of President Trump. His wife works in the Trump White House in a top communications post. Matt, welcome to the show. 
Great to be with you all. So I want to start on the news. The president uh, tweeting just this morning that it's time for Attorney General Sessions to end the Mueller investigation. He's been calling it a witch hunt for some time. Um, As you know, the attorney general has actually recused himself from this investigation. Why is that an appropriate thing for the president to call for? And doesn't it suggest that obstruction of justice is actually going on from the president to, to weigh in in that way? No, not at all. Matter of fact, I actually think that's the best way to move forward. Um, as you know, there's no special counsel statute anymore, so uh, Bob Mueller can be actively managed by the Department of Justice and by the Trump appointees at the Department of Justice. And what basically uh, Sessions has done by recusing himself is turning it over to the Deputy Attorney General, who is, in essence, from everything I can tell, doing nothing to manage um, the investigation. Pretty much, if Bob Mueller wants to hire someone, he can hire them. If he wants to hire people who have animus towards Trump, he was able to hire them. If he wants to go on for years and years, he'll probably be able to. And I think uh, for most of us who have watched this, I, I, I'm one who has not attacked Bob Mueller. I served with Bob Mueller in the Bush years. I think he did a great job leading the FBI. Um, you know, I'm hoping that he realizes that the politics of this investigation are really getting away from him. And I don't think we're any longer accomplishing anything if all this turns into prosecutions of people for things they did previous to the 2016 election. And I think bringing it, I think just, you, you want to say bring it to an end or just show us everything you have, show the American people what you have. And then if there's a need to prosecute, DOJ makes that decision anyway. In the end of the, the end of all this, the DOJ will make the decision if it's if anyone's to be prosecuted for any crimes surrounding 2016. But just to, to push back on this for a moment, you say that the politics are getting away from him. Isn't that the president's fault? I mean, it, we haven't heard a word from Bob Mueller publicly about about this investigation. He hasn't weighed in on the politics. He's been attacked very, very strongly by the by the president and a lot of his allies. If the, how is it how is it Mueller's problem if the politics of, of what his investigation are are getting away from him? Well, the big mistake Bob Mueller made was he surrounded himself with mostly attack dogs uh, who are uh, known partisan Democrats. He's had to let go of Peter Strzok already. I mean, you know about that situation. He never should have been hired. People who have animosity towards the president shouldn't be hired. And the president tweeted in the last couple of days that he and Mueller uh, might have some animosity from some uh, acrimonious uh, business relationship that they may have had. And you know, if this is true, uh, I think, uh, you know, I think we all need to know about it. I think what we suffer from in this investigation is after a year and a half um, of talking about this, over a year of the special counsel being on the job, um, you know, what we have is we still don't know everything we need to know as citizens, as voters. And I think it's just time to put all that out there. Let the chips fall where they may. If it's bad for the president, fine. If it's good for the president, fine. Just put all the information out there. And, and the president can decide to declassify a bunch of information and just put it out there as well. And I urge him just to do that at this point. I think um, I think most Americans believe that this is a very political operation, that uh, as soon as the dossier was seen as the reason for the FISA warrants and the dossier was paid for by pretty much the Democratic uh, machine, 
I just think for a lot of us who are Republicans and on the other side of the political ledger, none of this looks like it's fair. None of it looks like it's balanced. So I think as a country, we better just to put all the information out there and let us all sift through it. Let journalists do the same thing. And Matt, is, your, is it your sense that the president is prepared to take further steps to actively manage? Or is this active management? Is there something else he could or, or is thinking about doing to bring it under management? Well, it's all a game, right? It's all a game. Every uh, investigation that goes on in the Department of Justice ultimately uh, goes up the chain to the White House. And that's that's how our system works. We have three uh, branches of government. We don't have four, Rick. So there's no way that there are uh, government agencies that are somehow separate from the other three branches. Um, that being said, I think the president has allowed Rod Rosenstein to manage this process. Rod Rosenstein hasn't had his hands bound on any decision. He's been able to manage this any way he saw fit. I think what the president is saying is it's time to put uh, a, a kind of a stopwatch on this, an end time, when they have to simply say what they have in mind. As we all know, we all remember Lawrence Walsh. I know you're younger than me, and I'm, and I'm younger than the guys who had to deal with it at the time, but Lawrence Walsh was a special counsel for Ronald Reagan, and he went all after Iran-Contra. He went all the, around through the Reagan administration to the Bush administration uh, and went all the way through the Bush administration and acted very politically right before Bush was up for uh, re-election. So th- this is exactly what we don't want. We The facts here are actually not that complicated. Put them out on the table. Let's let everyone see them. I think I think everything should be out there unless it endangers national security. The original mandate was to look at Russian meddling in the 2016 elections, and we're seeing more evidence of that than ever. The Vice President Pence out there talking about it uh, out in the country. We're seeing Facebook taking down pages just this week saying that what looks to be Russian actors are back at it again. Senators talking about this being a real issue ahead of these midterms. Isn't there more reason than ever to make sure we understand what Russia did two years ago and what they might be doing now? Absolutely. And I love the shift. So for the first uh, 10 months of this, it was all about collusion. You notice that's not talked about very much because it seems like there's no evidence for collusion. So now it's it's the special counsel investigating Russia's impact on the 2016 election. The problem with that is you don't need a special counsel to do that. We have able uh, government agencies that can look at what they did, the CIA, the FBI, the DOD, and others. And I agree with you. Um, I think this is a very serious question. I think the sad thing is, is we've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of wasted effort on potential Trump team wrongdoing. And instead, we're, you know, we're not seeing the forest. In the forest, the problem here is meddling by Russia and North Korea and China and other bad actors. Um, and we are not prepared for the cyber warfare of the 21st century. And we should be. And I think it was a big mistake for Obama not to take steps to actually stop uh, the Russian meddling. And as you know, uh, according to Mike Pompeo and others, they've done this election cycle after election cycle. Now it's on Team Trump to try to stop it. And uh, and I hope we're prepared to because they're trying to sow chaos in our society. And I think they're doing a pretty damn good job of it. To be fair, Robert Mueller's team indicted Russians. That was the big indictment that came down that was focused on Russian government officials and what the work they did. So it does seem like part of his work has been focused on on what the Russians did. But 
if it is such a big issue as you're saying it is and that it needs attention, is the president doing enough? We hear from so many agency heads that there's not a coordinated plan. There's not a federal agency task force, an interagency team working on solving this issue. It doesn't seem like the president has taken this up as something that is worth his time to fight back on. You say you've heard from department heads about this. Please name one. Uh, Dan Coats, who's out there in front of Congress saying that the, we're not doing enough to recognize that this is happening again. Well, I think when he talks to Congress, I think it's a little different from that. He wasn't criticizing the president for not having a coordinated strategy. He was criticizing the fact that they probably don't have the appropriations to take all the steps they need to take to uh, undergo the strategy. Let's face it. I mean, you look at the hacking of the Sony Corporation by North Korea. You look with China, which is our number one threat uh, in every conceivable way, including online. Uh, if, if, the, if the criticism is, is that the American government over a period of decades has not taken the steps it needs to to prepare for this warfare, I would agree with that. I, I want to switch topics here uh, because there's some news over the weekend that I'm sure you followed, Matt, from the Koch Network um, at their at their biannual gathering on Colorado. They made an announcement that they wouldn't be supporting uh, Kevin Kramer, the the Senate candidate in North Dakota, one of the top priorities, top pickup opportunities for Republicans. And, and the main reason is that uh, essentially that he's too faithful to the president and his agenda, particularly when it comes to tariffs and trade. Uh, who Who's right here? Is it the Kochs or is it Donald Trump when it comes to free trade? Well, in, in full disclosure, I used to run uh, Koch Industries Washington office. I'm from Wichita, so I know the family and I have a high regard for them. Uh, they know how to run companies. They are operators of chemical facilities, refineries, they, they really are the standard on running those operations correctly. But politics is a whole different game. And I completely disagree with their decision to cut loose Kevin Kramer. And, uh, and, I, and I just think there's got to be something else here that maybe we don't, that's, that we don't see. But the, uh, Kevin Kramer is a great guy. We are the standard bearers on who's a conservative and who's not. And he has a very solid uh, voting record with the American Conservative Union. We rated him. Uh, excuse me. We endorsed him. Um, we're behind him 100 percent. We're going to do everything we can to get him elected. And, uh, and I think it's a big mistake for corporations uh, who even rep- corporations who have strong Republican ties to try to hedge their bets at this point to try to uh, make nice with Democrats because they fear that there's going to be a Democratic speaker or a Democratic majority leader in the Senate. And I just, uh, I believe, I suppose that's what corporations have to do in order to get along with both sides. But as a conservative, uh, I'm not for that. I'm for standing up for your friends. And our friend has been Kevin Kramer. He is not perfect, but he is a strong conservative uh, vote for the issues we care about. And and if you look at what the Senate's going to deal with, look at the Supreme Court alone. One vote can make the difference in whether a Supreme Court justice gets on the court or doesn't get on the court. We could have two more openings. For anybody who tries to align themselves with the free market or with the conservative policy goals, um, it's a big mistake to uh, to try to to try to make friends with uh, a Democrat at this point. But we've heard some serious anxiety from agriculture communities and even Republican governors about the escalating tariffs, the the possibility of a trade war. Is what you're seeing a good idea? No, I don't like the idea of a trade war. Um, I think a tariff is a tax, uh, and I would rather have as little taxation as possible, so I'd like to have as few of tariffs as possible. And I, and I, and I was very heartened by the president's announcement um, with the EU that the goal is to get tariffs down to zero. 
but I'm completely supportive, as I know Kevin Kramer is too, is using every tool we have in the toolkit to get the European Union or China or any other trade adversary um, to lower their tariffs. So what we've done is America for too long, uh, because we're free market uh, people, at least half of us are, and we're free trade people, at least about half of us are, uh, we would like to set an example of having low tariffs to encourage the rest of the world to have low tariffs. But if you look at a lot of these sectors around a lot of these commodities and products, which is us having the lower tariff hasn't had the impact we've wanted it to have on our trading uh, competitor. Uh, and uh, and that's, that, that causes big economic negative implications in our economy. So I applaud the president for using the tools he has to try to get them to come to the table to lower their tariffs. Remember, if he was just about raising tariffs, he wouldn't care about negotiating with them on it. He would simply raise our tariffs. If it was just about raising revenue, he would just raise our tariffs. He has the presidential authority to do that. But actually what he's trying to do is change the trade dynamics of the globe so that we have reciprocal trade. What happens here happens there. Look, look at a country like Japan. It's basically a closed economy. They don't take our cars. They don't take our products. Only about 10% of the Japanese economy is open. Um, yet we act like we have a free trade relationship with them. And uh, and that's just, you know, it's time to call it for what it is. And they take care of their market, their protectionists, while we're not. And we get all the negative for that. And he wants to make sure that it's fair. Matt Schlapp, we're inside 100 days uh, before the midterms, as you know. We've seen the president out on the campaign trail quite a, quite a bit, three times uh, by my count this week alone. I'm curious your sense of the mood uh, inside the Oval Office, inside the White House, as someone in touch with with the president and White House aides, with your wife working uh, inside the White House. It, we, we get these. We get the president out there. He's he's rah rah at these at these events. He's you know on full in full Trump mode out there. He's also unleashing. A, a, a furious series of tweets uh, about the Mueller probe and other topics and uh, talking about a government shutdown. What's your sense on where the president's head is out three months or so before the midterms? Incredibly engaged and focused on implementing his agenda. He's very proud of the fact that he's pushed aggressively and sometimes controversially, as we just talked about with issues like trade, uh, for his agenda. Um, he believes he's gotten more things done. Uh, than any president he can remember, and it's hard to argue with that. Um, not even just with the big tax bill and what they did with the individual mandate, but um, you know all the regulatory steps he's taken. That being said, he's you know he's concerned as every Republican should be about the midterms. Um, there was a uh, I don't know how you describe it, Rick, but uh, there was a panic that ensued in the House Republican Conference. A lot of people. Uh, made announcements that they were going to resign for Congress. I've talked to some of them who regret having made that decision because what looked like a huge blue wave, a terrible environment, has dramatically improved as the president's numbers have gotten them better and as the economy is starting to grow at a very rapid pace at 4.1%. So if you take it all together, I think the president's focused, but I think he knows the ramifications of losing the majority means he gets less things done means the Democrats will move to impeach him in the House if they get their majority. They'll do it. Uh, I think they'll do it rather quickly. And uh, and he'll have to face, you know, the time wasted on all that. I think the one thing in my conversations with um, the, the Trump administration is they feel like they've lost a lot of time on this uh, on this uh, Mueller investigation. And I think they realize it's taken its toll. And I think they realize that's why it seems so partisan, because in the end, the only thing we're accomplishing is 
is kind of like slowing down the president's agenda. And uh, and so I think he's focused on the elections. He knows the elections will have a big impact on what he can get done. And what I love about it is, is that if, if it's between kind of like sitting in a corner and sulking and acting, he acts. And he's going to be out on the campaign trail more than I've seen a president out on the campaign trail um, in a really long time. I mean, uh, President Bush was very active in 2002. But, you know, we were we were at war and he had to be um, careful with his time and he had to be balanced. Um, and, and President Trump is just going to go for it. And I think it's the right thing to do. And I think he'll have a huge impact. You know, what's interesting is that Republicans all over the country are fighting to get his endorsement. You know, the coverage of Trump, you would think that they'd be trying to steer clear of him. But exactly the opposite is happening. They all see the impact uh, when he endorses, uh, at least in Republican seats. And um, and and they're fighting for it. It's interesting. I haven't seen that dynamic in a while. We definitely saw that in Florida, uh, where he just was. You know, speaking of elections, according yeah, that's to, right. Yeah, uh, that ad we've all been talking about. Georgia, um, according Look at to Georgia, the, he endorses in the uh, in the runoff, and it completely switches that dynamic. He endorses, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida. Ron DeSantis goes from being down by double digits to being up by double digits. So, at least amongst conservatives and Republicans, there's a little man crush going on with <laughs> President Trump. Um, he's got great numbers with them. Yeah, uh, and so so in these Republican primaries, it's having a huge impact. I want to ask you about women, though. According to the Center for American Women in Politics, there are 228 female Democrats still in the running for Congress this year in primaries and general elections. A lot of them won their primaries, and there are only 79 Republican women running. Does the party have a challenge recruiting women to run? Yeah. So this gender gap question about how women vote and then how. The Republicans do in terms of recruiting women candidates. It's kind of like it's always interesting because then Democrats have the polar opposite, right? They have they have huge problems with male voters, and um, and I suppose in this day and age you wouldn't so much worry about trying to recruit men to run for office because uh, men have dominated politics for a couple centuries uh, in America. But mm-hmm. I, I think it is an issue, and I think we ought to keep focusing on it. I think the big thing I've learned in politics over the years is that. Um, you know, you have to have a welcome mat. And you have to be encouraging people. And uh, there's a lot of processes by which uh, people get behind a particular candidate in a state or in a city or for, or for a congressional race. And, uh, you know, most likely on both sides, that might still be dominated by men. And uh, and I think we ought to, wherever possible, do everything we can to make sure we have diverse candidates that look like America. I want to be a part of a nationwide party, not a regional party. Um, I don't want to be a part of a man's party. I want to be a part of a party that represents every American. So I think, but I think the Democrats have a, actually a problem here, which is they've been so hungry for diversity that that they they are become a party of sole solely diversity. You can't really get in the leadership of the House of Representatives. Um, you know, they have like. Uh, unwritten codes of, well, we really hold this for an African-American member, or we're holding this for uh, a female member or a diverse member. And we don't tend to do that in the Republican Party. I actually think that's better. I actually think you want to just pick the absolute best people. And I think part of the problem for the Democrats in the 2016 uh, nominating process for president is they put too much stock in Hillary Clinton becoming the first woman president, and they forgot that the American voter actually just wanted to have uh, the best president, the best person they could find to be president. And it kind of boomeranged on them. And I think it could boomerang on them again in 2020 if they think t- solely in terms of race and gender 
uh, sexual orientation in terms of who makes the best candidate. I think the best candidate is the person who can do the best job, who would include all those categories as well. Uh, Matt Schlapp, first time we've heard on the podcast about a Trump man crush. We like that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining, uh, Matt, uh, the, the chair of the American Conservative Union. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on. Very generous with your time. Appreciate it, sir. Thanks for your time. Take care. All right. Be well. So, Mary Alice, it is it is a striking difference uh, between the parties. Uh, they've made their arguments. President Trump is putting himself at the middle of this campaign. Uh, Republicans seem happy about that. Democrats are putting President Trump in the middle of this campaign as well. So yeah. you see you see both sides dig in along that. And I think you got at with uh, uh, at the end there with with Matt Lap some of the challenges that Republicans face. And he's not wrong about the Democrats. They they do have a problem. With men, the same way that uh, kind of the, the inverse of the of the problem that uh, the Democrats have. But there's a difference between appealing to voters and running candidates. I thought it was interesting that he admitted that the party has had an issue recruiting women to run, uh, that he wants to be a part of a national party. He said a regional party that has more of a welcome mat to all kinds of candidates. That was, um, I think, a pretty honest answer uh, for, for a Republican strategist right now. Those numbers are pretty stark that three times as many Democratic women are running than Republican women. But I think right at the top of the interview, Rick, you made quite a lot of news to have him say that he thought it made sense for the president to be pushing the attorney general to manage uh, this special counsel and this investigation that they now think that is the right way forward. That is fascinating. Actively managed was his term. And that's, that, that, that is an intriguing one. Uh, and look, we, we often probably read too much into presidential tweets. Often, uh, th- th- I think there's then the tendency to read too little into them as well and not recognize how extraordinary it is for the president of the United States to be saying to his attorney general explicitly in that public forum that it's time to stop an investigation. That hasn't happened with any previous president that I'm aware of. Uh, that was a line that no one ever crossed. And uh, it doesn't seem as, uh, as stark a headline because the president's come close to this line before many, many times and even musing publicly about getting rid of his attorney general or getting rid of Mueller. But that is a pretty, pretty striking thing when uh, literally this week, Bob Mueller's team is in court, in a federal court, trying to trying to prosecute, trying to convict his Trump's own former campaign manager for offenses that were turned up as uh, alleged offenses turned up during this investigation. So that that really is something from the president. And, and it does, from what Matt Schlapp has to say, suggest that there's more to come. Mostly what we've heard from Republicans on Capitol Hill is that Robert Mueller should be able to do his job, see it through. If there's no problem, if people are innocent, then that will come out in the wash, that it's better for the party, for the country, for the president in the White House, for the investigation to be complete and robust. This felt this conversation uh, with this advisor felt different, uh, felt like a turning point, where instead uh, there was perhaps more support for for reining it in. All right. We'll leave it there for this week. Thank you to Mary Alice Parks and thank to thank you to our entire team, uh, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, Trevor Hastings, Susie Wu. We appreciate you listening and we'll be back next week with another edition of Powerhouse Politics. Mm-hmm.